The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Hello, this is Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. I'm Mark Ellis. I'm a comedian, Rotten Tomatoes correspondent, and frequent user of SPF 50. And I'm Jacqueline Coley, and I work at Rotten Tomatoes as an editor where I cover independent film and awards. You a beach person, Jacqueline? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I literally grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas, which technically is a beach, although further examination would cause you to question that. The water's green. The water is green but it's in Corpus. A, it, it's, it's a gulf, right? It's a John Mellencamp song. I mean, yeah, up, right? yeah. I mean, it definitely is. Um, but like when people are like taking vacations, they're like, you're going to the Emerald Coast. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, <laughs> my question the- was actually, it, it was a trick question because I wasn't asking if you like the beach in general. I was asking about the movie, The Beach, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, the movie that is the subject of today's show. Critics were not fans of it. It is currently sitting at 20% rotten on the tomato meter. Now, the audience score is a market improvement. It gets to what I like to say fresh adjacent. So it's still rotten, but it's really (laughs) knocking on the door at 57%. Um, Jacqueline, is Rotten Tomatoes wrong on the beach? Should this be a fresh movie in your eyes? Um, no. (laughs) Like, I really, like, I'm, I'm, I'm very much placing myself in the minds of others for this episode because my mind literally left my body at several points when I was watching it. So I don't think that The Beach is a bad movie, but I don't think Rotten Tomatoes is wrong that it should be rotten. And we'll get into the reasons of that, but jelly beans and filet mignon. That's kind of the way I look at The Beach. Those are two great things, but why you would put them together, I'm a little confused. But we'll break that down. Yeah, you should only get one trick-or-treating. Um, I am a fan of the movie. I actually think Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. Uh, I'm, I may not be a huge fan of the movie, but I think it's got a lot of qualities that are worth discussing, which, hey, that's why we have a podcast, and that's why we have this episode, and that's why we have our very special guest who's going to be joining us just a little bit, and our guest also thinks Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. So it's two-on-one. Jacqueline going to be playing a lot of... Maybe you're going to have to be on the offensive today, Jacqueline. I don't know how you break this down if you're playing D because your movie is currently rotten, which you agree with. But this is going to be a whole lot of fun to talk about. All the stuff that went into making the movie, all of the hubbub about Leonardo DiCaprio fresh off of his titanic monster success making this weird Danny Boyle film. So before we get into all that and introduce our guest, Jacqueline, I have but one question. What the hell is the beach about? 
The Beach is a 2000 film that was directed by Danny Boyle that stars Leonardo DiCaprio at the height of his post-Titanic fame. And in the film, Leonardo DiCaprio plays a wandering sort of post-college kid named Richard who is seeking adventure in Bangkok, where he checks into a hostel, meets some strange cast of characters, and finds a sort of island preserve that they call the beach, where they have developed it into a utopia where Tilda Swinton is their leader. And if I was building a utopia, that is what I would do as well. (laughs) But uh, that's when the thing really gets a little bit weird because utopia is a hard thing to maintain. So Leo sort of examines that, realizes that it's a little bit strange to try and create this paradise and goes a little bit insane along the way. All right. Well, you and I can at least agree on one thing is that Tilda Swinton is going to be the leader when we try to create a utopian society. So at least... We're starting out on the right foot and someone who always gets us going in the minds of the critics at the time and now looking back on the movie is the Rotten Tomatoes curator of movie reviews. That is the one, the only Tim Ryan, who does a segment for us every week. And we toss to him now, Tim, what were the critics saying about the beach? So when The Beach came out in 2000, it was sort of a transitional moment for both Danny Boyle, the director, and Leonardo DiCaprio, the star. Um, Let's start with Danny Boyle. Shallow Grave was released in 1995, and it was this pitch black comedy that developed a really strong word of mouth cult. Um, And Danny Boyle followed it up with Train Spotting, which is one of the defining movies of Generation X and was a breakout film for him and also for its star, Ewan McGregor. So the following year, Danny Boyle follows up with a supernatural kidnapping, screwball romance road movie called A Life Death Ordinary, starring McGregor and Cameron Diaz. And the critics felt it was ambitious but it was totally all over the map. So next comes The Beach. And let's turn over to what was happening in Leonardo DiCaprio's career at the same time. So Leonardo DiCaprio had been developing a reputation for one of the, as one of the hottest actors in Hollywood after he was in What's Eating Gilbert Grape and This Boy's Life and especially William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And um, what happened next was a little movie called Titanic, which you may have heard of. So now he's the king of the world, as they say. And Leonardo DiCaprio's next movie is The Man in the Iron Mask, which producer Lucy Bruckner believes is his finest performance, but critics and audiences tend to disagree on that front. So this is where Danny Boyle and Leonardo DiCaprio are in their careers when they team up for The Beach. And it's based on a novel by Alex Garland. The tomato meter for The Beach is 20% with 115 reviews, and the audience score is 57%. So not the best either way. But let's hear what some of the critics had to say. In a rotten review, Lisa Schwartzbaum of Entertainment Weekly wrote, the filmmakers intermittently juice and gun the picture with their scattershot blend of hyperrealism and hallucinatory imagery. They also garble and dilute the story's narrative power by resetting the book's machinery. On the other hand, in a fresh review, Wesley Morris from the San Francisco Examiner wrote, despite a flat finale and some laughable hypothesizing about the pursuits of liberty, the movie has its own addictive elements well-used electronica, Darius Kanji's photography, and the nonstop charisma of its star. So the basic consensus from the critics was that the beach had beautiful scenery and some stylistic flourishes, but the plot was pretty thin and it lacked some of the psychological insights from Alex Garland's original novel. 
So Danny Boyle rebounded with 28 Days Later, which is a plague film that has uh, a renewed relevance these days before making Slumdog Millionaire and 127 Days Later and Steve Jobs and being one of the biggest directors around. Meanwhile, Leonardo DiCaprio makes Catch Me If You Can in 2002 and regains his status as one of the hottest actors of his generation. And there you have it. The Beach. Back to you, Mark. Yeah, well, you hear that, Jacqueline, and you say, okay, well, critics are going to be divided on this movie, as was the audience. But the one thing it seems like everyone can agree on is that the movie is gorgeous to look at. I mean, this is the movie that will make you want to go on a vacation, maybe not a permanent vacation. Shout out to Aerosmith, but at least one for a couple weeks. And so (laughs) before we introduce our guest, Jacqueline, I want to just task our lovely producer, Lucy, with this mission before the end of the show, Lucy, if you can, if you can listen and 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 then figure out how much it costs for us to go to wherever they film the beach and just have a nice like two week vacation there, do you have any sort of travel agency numbers to throw at Jacqueline and I? Okay. Yes, I'm gonna look it up, guys. Post COVID too, so the rates should be down. That's what I'm saying. You guys are about it's, to find yeah. out how multifaceted I am. <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll check back in with uh, with producer Lucy because she also has to look up how many frequent flyer miles Jacqueline and I have on our various oh, airlines. Gosh. Jacqueline and I have a heated competition, and no, then wait. we're eventually going to get to the beach. Are you guys going and together? Is this a ticket? Is this a two, is this a one way ticket? Are you guys coming back? It's going to be. It's going to be three of us going on vacation. Sorry, Lucy, not you're not the third person. The third person is our very special guest who I now have the privilege of introducing. He is a writer, director, actor, and he's got a new movie out on VOD called The Wolf of Snow Hollow. And it is the perfect time of the year to be watching this movie, not just because of the title, but some other reasons we'll get into. He is Mr. Jim Cumming. Jim, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. I know you and uh, you and Jacqueline know each other a little bit uh, based off of the the heat from your your initial movie that that you had released and it got all this critical acclaim and now you had a much bigger budget to work with for the Wolf of Snow Hollow. I mean, big numbers to me is two million dollars. You know, <laughs> hopefully that gets us to our beach vacation that Lucy's looking up. But the Wolf <laughs> of Snow Hollow, the making of it, what was the biggest difference in making a film like this versus your initial effort as a director and as an actor yeah it was a it was an incredible jump it was my first studio movie um i I equate it to trying to take an aircraft carrier to the grocery store because you have 55 (laughs) people on set at any given time and you just need to get these simple things where if you're shooting something in austin texas in a backyard you can just grab the camera and go and get but with all of the red tape and regulations that it takes to, and just the, the practicalities of moving 55 people up a mountain, not to mention, you know, on icy roads and like getting frostbite, um, it was just a huge undertaking in a way that was very unique to my experience and very different. Um, so that was probably the biggest jump for me. Yeah, Jack, when I was kind of thinking, maybe the reason why Jim wanted to come on this episode and talk about the beach so much is because he's been stuck in the snow and the ice for so long. <laughs> he just you wanted know, to get back to a tropical location. Yeah, the moon is always jealous of the sun and Snow Hollow <laughs> is jealous of the beach. Oh, look at that on her feet. I'm sorry. I'm feeling good this morning. <laughs> that was that was quality yes anding right there. Uh, 
it, so Jim, as we get into the beach, I know this movie means a lot to you. Can you tell us about your your first time seeing it and, and why this movie blew you away so much and what it was about the movie that did that? Yeah, sure. So I really love this movie and I watched it for the first time. I was probably a freshman in high school, so it would have been after Titanic came out. Um, and I was kind of like a big fan of Titanic and the cinema that is in that film. Um, and then seeing this one, it just felt like this incredibly wonderful boyish adventure film with great music and great sound design and sequence editing um, in a time where I wasn't really seeing that, as well as having this incredibly thoughtful um, backstory about human nature. And that was kind of exactly what I was looking for. Um, this is obviously like before 28 Days Later. This is like before any of Alex Garland's other work in doing deep dives into how crazy humanity can be. Um, but I was a kid. I was pro I was younger than Richard is in the film. And I saw it as just this like glorified, beautiful, adventure, sexy utopia movie. And, and then everything that happens in the second half as well. Yeah, by the time I came to it, I was a couple years late. And so this movie for me fell into my uh, Netflix is sending me the DVD. And I had a couple of roommates because <laughs> I just moved to California to start doing stand up from the East Coast. And so watching this movie, I, I really could sympathize with the character that Leo portrays, because when we meet him, he's walking around the streets of Thailand. And it's just so overwhelming to be in this entirely different culture. The way sentences are structured are different. The way that people live their lives, their day-to-day -day is so markedly different from everything he's used to. And that's the adventure he was seeking. And while it's overwhelming to him, Jacqueline, it also it seems like he's able to enjoy the fact that this is new, this is different. And that's what I was feeling because I was out of my Virginia, North Carolina bubble and going to open mics every night and just meeting comics and just figuring out what this new language that I I have to start speaking, hopefully for the rest of my life is. And so once you get to that utopian beach where he ends up in the movie, it's this is what I've dreamed about. But then when your dreams meet reality, what's left? And so I think this movie hit me at the right age for it. Were you a, a viewer of the beach when it came out in theaters, Jacqueline, or did you arrive at it much later? Well, fun story, Mark. Um, when we were told that we were doing the beach, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen the beach. And, but of course, I'm going to rewatch it for the show. And about 20 minutes into the movie, I realized that in my catalog of movies that I had seen in my brain, the beach was the island, which is the Michael Bay ah, ah. movie. And ah. I literally was like, this is not the beach that I was thinking about, which when we get into later, it's kind of fitting that the movie that I replaced it with was a movie that stars Ewan McGregor since Ewan McGregor was replaced by Leonardo DiCaprio. Anyway, but yeah, no, so I actually saw it for the first time getting ready for this show. And, and I know it was the first time in the sense that like, I would have remembered <laughs> had I seen this movie because it has, it is seared into my vision. It, I will never forget the moments watching that. Um, yeah, I was, I was very, uh, it was a visceral moment because there were moments I was with it. Like at the very beginning, I was enjoying it. And then, you know, as it progresses, I was like, okay, this is different, but whatever. But it's just the fact that they shoved them all together. So it, it was a recent watching for me. And I will also say it's not the best pandemic viewing because although we're all itching to get outside, I didn't want to go anywhere near these crazy white children who are, you know, turning into Lord of the Flies. Like I was just like, no, I'll stay inside. Uh, so yeah, it was a recent, uh, uh, recent watch for me, but definitely memorable. Very memorable. 
Yeah, there's not a lot of hand sanitizer going around that island. And, <laughs> no. and that really is the thing. It's funny, Jim, you bring up making a movie like The Wolf of Snow Hollow and how much of a challenge that is when you have a big studio movie. I see a lot of that in the beach from the standpoint of when we're on this utopian island and we're having a great time, we can have a good day and a great night and a lot of fun. And everybody's having this big Fleetwood Mac sex party and it doesn't matter whose partners are what and we're hunting sharks and it's all good. <laughs> but then... We got to go to the mainland and we got to lug drums of Vaseline and we got to pick up a bunch of bread and, and, and booze and all this stuff. And it just seems like you're moving mountains just to go to the grocery store to pick up some essentials from the mainland to bring back to the beach. So it's a little bit of the experience you might have gone through making your movie in the beach that this utopian society is dealing with. Yeah, especially with these places that are like at the top of a mountain and it's 14 degrees and you just you realize kind of what human beings need in that large number. It's a bit like the fire festival. And sometimes it seemed like that of like having to get all of these resources up to the top of the mountain. And then like everybody's, you know, on frozen cold tundra for eight hours, 10 hours or whatever. And uh, and trying not to freeze. Like, you, yeah, I guess like survival becomes such a an aspect of, of filming something, which is why I appreciate this movie so much more. Shooting in the weather in like the sunny, hot tropics of uh, Thailand is just as difficult, although it doesn't seem that way. It seems like it might be like a fun pina colada kind of, uh, you know, summer camp. It's it's got it must have been hell to shoot this movie um, in the same way that it would be in shooting in the snow. Is there a, a particular scene in the beach that, that that sort of speaks to why you have such an affinity for the movie? I mean, it's it's difficult because the movie is structured in such sequence editing, in such like montage where they use overarching narration to kind of tell the story between many scenes. Um, I really love the sequence of him finally coming to the island with the French couple where they are alone in the endeavor and they think that they could be insane and they jump off of the cliff and then they're greeted by one of the utopians and they're brought over and it becomes this wonderful entrance into the world and it ends that montage with them going out to the beach for the first time and him doing the somersault and landing and it's just this like wonderful portrait of um I guess like welcoming yourself to paradise and it's it's such a beautiful setup for the payoff that it becomes like that becomes this like wonderful enticing pornography for audiences of like oh wow paradise is a real thing to then actually showcase how dangerous it can be uh, only a couple of minutes later it's neat all right so we'll jump Yeah, it's that bite of the forbidden fruit. And you're like, ooh, I want some more of that. It's like in uh, an interview with a vampire when Kirsten Dunst <laughs> tastes the blood for the first time. And she's right. like, ooh, I want some more. Because we're all thinking, oh, this is great. We're all going to have a nice journey. And we're all going <laughs> to discover something about ourselves. Yeah. And then the movie, because I'm with the movie, virtually the entire film but there's this one particular scene and everybody who's seen the movie is going to know where I'm going with this. The movie literally turns into a video game. There's a yeah. part where it turns into a video game where Leo has been tasked because he's the one that, oh, uh, yeah, okay, maybe I did draw a map and show other people that I was vacationing at. Like, to reference Jim's point, the other fire Festival wannabe goers <laughs> that want to see this island. And so Leo's just going nuts by himself. And I remember yeah. sitting in my crappy apartment under the 101 and just 
thinking, what the hell is this movie doing? Like, where is yeah. this? Where is this movie running to? And, and and as much as it was a weird departure, it definitely opened my eyes to how Danny Boyle likes to make a film because the way that he loves sure. taking chances with it. But I think it also could have lost some audience members, particularly oh, yeah. the large sect at the time that was coming off of Titanic. And now you get to see Leo and he's got a shirt off and we're swimming in the ocean. We're battling mm-hmm. sharks. Is that where the movie started to take a left turn for you that maybe was a left turn into Rottenville? I mean, first of all, listening to you guys talk about this movie, I'm like, oh, man, this sounds so great. And then I remember, no, you saw this crap. It is not good. And I know I have to be that forceful person to say this right now. But like, no, it, it, this is what it was for me. Watching the movie, if you would have just like cut it off at certain sections, I would have been like, yeah, that's great. Like a 30 minute story of discovery or like, oh, we found Utopia. Let's go have our little cult moment with Tilda Swinton. And then like when it gets to deliverance slash um, first person shooter, that's another thing. And individually, they're all enjoyable, but stitching them together. I, I I was just baffled. And so my biggest emotion with this movie is not even anger or like what or like dislike. It's confusion. It confused me so much, not because I didn't know what they were going for, but more I was like, but why would you want to do it that way? Like so. And the one scene that really sort of epitomizes that for me are the two uh, love scenes that Leonardo DiCaprio character has, which is the one that he has with Francine and then the one that he has with Sal. That's the French girl and Tilda Swinton. Mm-hmm. And basically the two most attractive women, as far as like who you'd want to be with one, the most like beautiful, physical, attractive. The other one is the leader. Also gorgeous. It's like, and he has done nothing to show why any woman would want to sleep to him with him up to that point. He's been rude. He's been abrasive. He's been a complete jackass. And all these women are like dropping to their knees and throwing panties at him. Like it's a Luther Vandross concert. And so both of those sex scenes had me be like, but why, but why, why do y'all want to bang him? I know he's Leonardo DiCaprio and he is hot, but he's a dick. He's a, such a dick in the movie. I don't suppose that there's any, you know, special reason that you should spend time with me, that is. Of course there is. I like you. A lot. Have you have you told this to ATN or? No. It's our secret. So that really is sort of that that was the nonsensicalness of it for me. And that's the the biggest emotion I sort of had with this movie is just why? This is why I love this show, because now I get to toss that question back to Jim Cummings, esteemed writer, actor, director. Jim, why were they banging Leo? Was it worth it to (laughs) bang Leo? So there are two there are two claims here. The first one is that the tone of the film shifts too much and too drastically, that it feels like it is three different movies put together into one. Yes, Um, I I would say uh, that it's actually that the film is a Trojan horse uh, about uh, humanity and how difficult human nature is and how ugly it can be disguised as this Instagram pornography to get younger audiences and more general audiences to see it. Um, you're also talking about the video game sequence. Um, it, it, I, I would say that well, he eats mushrooms right beforehand. So it's actually a mushroom trip that you're seeing him do. And then that is part of the Apocalypse Now section of the film where you're watching somebody get off the boat repeatedly and Breaking Bad of like how close he can get to um, the ugliness of the animalistic human nature, where he actually becomes the monkey that howls um, at himself, but he sees these two people get shot and then gets woken up from this this dream. Anyway, could go on for a long time. Um, 
The, the second claim is about uh, how sex is used in the film. The first sex scene is with the beautiful French girl that he's been chasing for the previous 60 minutes. And it's this wonderfully shot uh, sequence with um, bioluminescent fish or krill that are in the water. And the music comes up and it's like this cool early 2000s nightclub By the way, they all sexy look, stuff. Everything looks sure. pretty. I'm not sure. going to dispute that. <laughs> and that becomes this kind of like, um, y- you know, enticement for the male audience. Certainly me when I was 14, when I watched it for the first time of like, that is so romantic and so like cool and European and like, oh man, this is, this is how big and crazy and sexy sex can be. Um, and cinematic it can be. Um, and then the next scene that they have, uh, is when he has sex with Sal, uh, and it's, it's very ugly. It's like them in a tent together and she's using it as a power play as the head of the, the organization to kind of showcase her power to him. And then she also says like, we may have sex again before, um, but I might want to have sex again before the morning. And it's like this weird currency thing that she's using. So I would say it's less um, attractive. And at that point in the film, it's they do that as a reason to like, or they do that on purpose to kind of show the appeal of the island and sexuality not being as cool as the 14-year-olds thought that it was. And I think that that, that is a cool thing to do, actually. Yeah. And I've I, I've had women tell me that. And like, I may want to have <laughs> sex again in the morning. And I'm like, look, I know it's because I'm not good at this. So this this has to be some sort of weird power play, which, which I really appreciated how different they were. Because that first one, when he's sleeping with this beautiful French woman who, let's face it, Jacqueline, her boyfriend, her friend, wasn't exactly Mr. Personality. He wasn't lighting up a room with great stories. So I can see... See why she might have a wandering eye, but that is the version of like that beachside sex that everybody thinks is going to be great where you're not actually there. You're watching it and it looks beautiful, but then you yeah. get there and you're like, oh, it's Sandy. Can we yep. shower our feet off yep. before? Let's just go in, in back into the hotel and do this like adults. Like it's 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 the the confluence of what our perception of that reality is going to be and then what that reality becomes, which is I, I think it, the point of this movie for me, is that it's the entire experience of what it's like to be in a cult. Because I'm watching that that show, The Vow, and it's like you see everybody getting into Nexium, and they're like, yeah. oh, this is great because I'm learning all this new stuff about myself and I'm figuring out life. And then you start to see the darker side. Once uh, for a lot of people, you're you're in too deep already. Jackie, did you at least get like the, the the cult angle that I'm going for here? That, that we got the entire feeling of what it's like to be in a cult without all that. You know, we have to tell our families, "Hey, sorry about the fact I was in a cult for the last five years." I mean, absolutely. I mean, this is the '90s version of like the sort of like hate Ashbury era. Or, like, you know, let me go be in the Children of God. The height of like '70s cults like lives in the DNA of this movie and every single person in that movie would have been in Nexium, would have been in any cult that you could think of because that is just, that's the type of personality that seeks this. The thing that I found to be more interesting, there's a lot of interesting things about this movie, not necessarily to me the narrative. What I found to be really interesting is just this movie centers and it has in every aspect of it is people searching for an identity and manufacturing that identity when they are absent of it in their lives. And so they're seeking this version of utopia because that's how Sal becomes a person. That's how the people there who are these ordinary, uninteresting and perhaps maybe sort of boring existences outside of this utopia can be something more in it together. And just them dancing on the beach and pretending that the world isn't burning gives them more purpose than you know, a second semester uh, study abroad or graduate school. That's an interesting point when, and especially when you talk about Tilda Swinton as 
this this cult leader because she is the standout of the movie to me. She steals every scene she's in, and she is so good as somebody that you want to trust, even though I feel like Danny Boyle sets her up from the beginning as someone who is not to be trusted. And I don't know if that's just me when I was rewatching it that I got that uneasy feeling, even though I wanted to believe her. I felt like emotionally I should keep a distance from her. I can't recall if I felt that at the time. Do you think that this movie's trying to fool people into believing her message? Or right from the get-go, we see, hey, this this is somebody who we need to keep an eye on. Yeah, I mean, they do that in a couple of different ways. They, like, introduce her boyfriend as being the, like, definitely scariest and bullheaded and most masculine dude on the island. And so, like, clearly that becomes a threat. If you get close enough to Sal, this, like, bulldog is going to come after you. And he does occasionally, like, threatening him and holding him down and all that stuff. Um, but, yeah, and then and then obviously the film builds up to that. Like, that becomes these, like, tasteful setups for the punchline at the end of the film of using the pistol without the bullets. And then as soon as she does it, it becomes this metaphor for it being impossible to have a real utopia without actually breaking a few eggs. And then everybody disbands because of it. So, yeah, I think I think all of that is, like, tasteful setups for, for the payoff at the end. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. It's so interesting because I feel like... And by the way, I think this is the last rotten movie that, that certainly that Alex Garland was a part of. He's gone yeah. on to have a, a, a fresh career. And Danny Boyle, for the most part, I believe, has remained in the category of fresh after this movie, but I see so many great Danny Boyleisms. I, I think my favorite Danny Boyle movie is 127 Hours, just because of the the stark use of of color and and the angles and and it just the, the way that he he frames shots and the random things that come into that movie. You see a lot of that in the beach, and so I, I just think. From a filmmaking perspective, I think this is a movie that can be used to 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 be studied and it can use to inspire young minds to want to go make movies that have a message that isn't just the, you know, we, we start out on a journey and it's the hero's journey and we win at the end of the day, like, like something that, that gets a little deeper and a little more complicated than that. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say that the the beauty of this movie if the, that is universal and cannot be denied is the skill that Danny Boyle has behind the camera. I, I watched Shallow Grave was like one of the first movies I remember right. I had to like get 
uh, blockbuster video to understand that I needed this movie. They only had one <laughs> copy, and I was like, oh, this is frustrating. I remember this very specifically. Um, and it was because I'd watched Train Spotting. So when Train Spotting came out, I was like, oh, okay, I want to go see this guy's other movie. And that's when I saw Shallow Graves. So I, I appreciate what Danny Boyle does. He films crazy quite well. He, he is great at filming crazy. And so that last sequence is beautifully shot and really compelling. And I absolutely kind of adore the, the madness of it. But I just had steak. I can't eat jelly beans to follow that up. Like, it doesn't make any sense for me. And and my whiplash, I, and you guys are framing this movie in a great way. You guys should sit with David Ehrlich, who wrote this lovely piece for Rolling Stones about how this movie is underappreciated. Y'all sit oh, with really? a cocktail. Yeah, it's a really great piece. Really great piece. Um, I actually, like, read it and then, like, t- DM'd him, like, you know what? I don't agree with this, but really well done. Um yeah. <laughs> You have such a stronger will than I do because I'd read that piece and I'd hear Jim talk about this movie and I'd be like, you know what? I was wrong. Y'all are right. (laughs) No, no, this movie is bad. I'm so impressed. No, no, this movie is bad. It is definitely bad because what I was watching it, it was, this is why I was watching it. I could not enjoy it because every moment, this is the difference. It's not a movie that I would say is wholly bad because of everything that you guys are saying makes sense, but you can't ignore that they shoved them together in a way that is nonsensical. And I know you think they play into each other, but I think there were choices made in this movie that are purposeful in the sense of like, we don't care if we're bringing you along. They could have brought the audience along way more. And I think, honestly, Danny Boyle was a little gassed up about, like, let me do this. And he just didn't care to keep the audience involved. And I also think, like, the book that it's based off of was its Achilles heel as well. Because the book, I, I came to find out Best later, was, yeah, yeah, it was really, like, a seminal piece of the Gen X generation and, and being lost. And it, it was revered. And I think he felt the pressure of that. And that's why there's so much in this movie that I think is absent from the book that is not needed to make it enjoyable. That's it. Hmm. I mean, I, again, if you I'm, take I'm them separately, of, I love it. Like, well, I, I'm, I I'm trying to think of dig. like what, what are what are other films that you appreciate that do the Trojan horse thing better? To like, like, see, oh, see, like yeah. I, yeah, yeah, like I'm, I'm thinking of like The Matrix, where The Matrix is like this incredible um, movie about philosophy and what is real, disguised as an action film, or like yeah. Inside Out, which is one of my favorite movies of all time, is this. Um, you know, uh, incredible showcase of how the brain works and our emotions and teaching children how to learn themselves disguised as a kid's film. And I'm I'm thinking of like, like with the beach, it's kind of the same thing to me. It's like this cautionary tale about humanity and trying to say that, you know, the things that we are doing this like lavish, uh, you know, ugly Bangkok life of, you know, technology and just gross drunkenness um, is not, really how human beings should be at the same time as um, showcasing it through this beautiful, you know, Instagram uh, aspirational cinematography. Um, Well, it's funny you mentioned both of those movies because I agree with you on both those movies that they're absolutely brilliant. But in looking at the narrative of those, it is much more of a slow pull. Danny Boyle in this movie is doing very like sharp turns. Like the turn to go from one to the other is really where the issue, in my opinion, lies, not in the premise. It's just bring us along a little bit slower. And he had the possibility to do it if he would have just removed some of the places he was trying to go by being a little bit more um, judicious and sort of choosing to take a little bit of the toppings off of the pizza 
he would have, I think, been able to bring the audience along a little bit better to be a part of it. I don't disagree with you that those are great. Another great Trojan Hosh film that I love is The Handmaiden. Uh, that one right. is presented as this sort of, right. you know, uh, crime thriller, and then it turns into the sex drama, and then it <laughs> ends up being this really beautiful escapist love story. And they are all completely... Um, um, cogent and thought through and the the audience is able to follow along with them. So if you're telling me that I, that is not a premise, I enjoy that premise, but looking at the difference of the way that movie tells it and, and he was um, so, I think, thoughtful and how he, when he made the turns and this movie just isn't, it just fucking turns, sorry. <laughs> well, I, I think it's interesting just to hear because I, I'm somebody who enjoys having my my expectations subverted while I'm watching a movie. What I don't like is being lied to mm. uh, going into the movie. I, I don't like going in under a false premise. So if the movie is going to be a Trojan horse, that's fine. But if it's actually something that is going to put me off, that like I always go back to the way that the village was marketed. You know, yeah. like I went in thinking this was one thing and now I can go back and appreciate that now mm-hmm. that I'm not expecting something totally different mm-hmm. with the beach. I do wonder if a lot of the initial blowback from critics and the audience, because, again, it's closer to fresh, but it's still a rotten movie. According to the audience score is simply a lot of people thought this was going to be another Leo love fest like what Titanic they just too. saw with Titanic yeah. in, in yeah. this in the same way that I remember a lot of people who were huge Jim Carrey fans, as was I after 1994, going in to see the cable guy and thinking, oh, he's going to be a wacky cable guy this time. And he is, but there's so much more (laughs) in that movie and it gets dark and it gets twisted. And the Ace Ventura fans of the world, I don't think we're ready for that. Yeah. Yeah. Comparison is the thief of joy, a smart guy (laughs) once said. Um, Yeah, I think, uh, so the reason I I picked this film is because it has a 20% rating by critics and a 57% audience score. And I think that that is incredibly low for the master craftsmanship that is showcased in this film. Like, I, I agree, Jacqueline, you say like, well, there are better ways to tell the story or he just like pivots too quickly towards the humanity stuff away from the, you know, like college Thailand trip movie. Um, but but really, to me, like when when you look at his, you know, where he went from this film. This is like his first really gigantic film because the kid from Titanic said that he would act in it. Mm. Um, I, I just think it's it's such a, it, it's so easy to look at Cormac McCarthy's work and he's one of the best writers in the English language. He just happens to write about necrophilia and cannibalism. <laughs> and like, I, I can appreciate the craftsmanship of that. And I feel like that is what is absent from cinema these days. Like, using the camera and the editing to help tell the story. And because of that, I appreciate these movies that even if they do take gigantic left turns and turn into a video game during an Apocalypse Now sequence, um, I'm I'm very fulfilled by that because, I don't know, he's doing it and he's doing something big and crazy um, and using that same audience. Like he knows that the 16-year-old girls who fell in love with Leo are going to be watching this movie and that's such a cool thing to do. Um, yes, he knows you know? the audience that is watching it better than the audience that knows itself. And I agree with you, there is a certain novelty to watching 
a Beethoven-like virtuoso uh, compose a a kazoo symphony, but that's what this is. You just got somebody (laughs) extremely talented to give us a kazoo symphony, which has its merits on its face, but I just think he would be better served and was better served later on in his career when he did otherwise. But it's funny that you bring up the kid from Titanic because, again... There is there's a lot of things I can say about this movie. Inter, inter, not entertaining is not one of them. I was highly entertained as okay, much cool. as I was confused. I, I'm in cool. no way dis, uh, disparaging that. But some of my entertainment came from the knowledge of what was happening behind the scenes. Like the fact that, first of all, this movie like broke up the bromance of Ewan McGregor yeah. and Danny Boyle. Um, it was. An, yeah, so a, so Ewan yeah. McGregor was. But this isn't like he was replaced during filming situation. No. He, 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 he was considered, and, and I don't even know if, if Danny had him in mind when they were adapting the actual screenplay from Alice yes. Garland's book, oh, which yes. is the book, yeah. by the way, yeah. the, the, the book did not have the sex scenes in. The, yes. that they kind of added that for, for the screenplay. But so, so Ewan McGregor was just the front runner? Yeah. And so basically after Shallow Grave and Train Spotting, Danny and Ewan essentially kind of decided that they were going to be what a lot of uh, actor director pairs do. You know, Scorsese with De Niro before it became Scorsese with DiCaprio. Um, they were going to be a pair and they and they then they had talked about this movie. He talked about how he wanted to get the rights to it. He got the rights to it. Uh, it was Danny's big movie and the studio was like, we can get Leo. And I think there was a little bit of back and forth in the sense of like, maybe Danny played it up like it was all the studio. But in the back of his mind, Danny Boyle was also like, but it's Leonardo DiCaprio and this movie's going to be way better as far as a marketing aspect and how much money we're going to get to film. Yep. We're going to get to go to Thailand and wreck an entire beach with Leonardo DiCaprio. If we do it with you and McGregor, we're going to have to do this. We're still going to shoot in Scotland. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like we're going to have to do a lot in Berkeley or something or sorry, uh, uh, Burbank. So yeah. I, I think that was like what, what happened? Behind, well, it is what happened behind the scenes when they reteamed finally to do train spotting too. both of them were very gracious and open about how um, that sort of happened. And Ewan admitted, you know, he's a little bit immature about it. And, and and Danny also meant that he wasn't as forthcoming about what happened. But it's very interesting that, you know, think about all the movies that, you know, Ewan McGregor probably would have been in 28 Days Later if it wasn't for what happened here. And for Leo, doing this movie as the first thing that he did after Titanic was kind of a blessing in disguise because it gave him the big flop that allowed him to then go on and be like, yeah, I'm good now. I can literally do whatever I want because playing the game does not serve me. And then he went on to greater heights with different directors and and had his Steven Spielberg phase and his Scorsese phase. And I think obviously he was had a better career for it. So, yeah, so, so sorry. So, yeah, I see that that's interesting. Like when I see that choice to go from Titanic to this one, I see that as an incredibly brave thing to do. And I guess it did flop. It doesn't have the most critical success. But looking at what Robert Pattinson did between Twilight, uh, Twilight and then Good Time, where it's like his audience is actually very young, 16 to you know now 21 year old girls. And he makes a movie where he is like incredibly crass to a 16 year old girl and it's ugly and he's just this douchey guy. And that is such a wonderful thing of like, if you want to compose an orchestra, sometimes you have to turn your back on the crowd if you want mm. to focus on the on the musical instruments and doing something yeah. big. Same thing, obviously, with Sandler and Uncut Gems of like doing something completely brave and different and ugly. Um, that's kind of what I see DiCaprio doing. And this, you know, like Pattinson was a big star and Sandler is a huge star, but like to go from Titanic 
to then doing the ugly apocalypse now shitty suburban kid going to Thailand, ugly American image, I think is just such a bigger risk. And because of that and the way that it was executed, I'm I'm all for it. I'm like the biggest cheerleader. It's and a I think choice. it shaped I, I think it shaped a lot of DiCaprio's career choices going forward because of all the the blowback that, that the production got at the time right. and when they were promoting the movie about how they it, there were claims that they were harming the, the the environment when they were filming and doing all these other things and a lot of that falls on the the actor who is the star of the movie who's promoting it has to field all these questions and and Leo who's a huge environmentalist it's I, I think you you maybe take that experience and you say okay here's something that I don't care to revisit in my mm. future picture is answering these kind of questions. And so I love taking risks with my art, but not necessarily with the production. Yeah, I, I would actually agree too, though, with the idea of, um, I, I do think the choice that that Leo made to do the beach was brave, but, I, but in post beach, the reaction and everything that came with it, I think was an even more of a stark reminder to him to say, don't do always... Um, don't make the turn the way that he did. He went back to more traditional movies with traditional filmmakers. And so he definitely took risk in the sense that the movies that he made were not Titanic, but in a way going to do catch me if you can in gangs of New York, that's going back to Titanic in a lot of ways, as far as like, you know, very established auteur director doing a very big movie um, where you get to be in the starring vehicle. So that that to me says that, you know, this kind of maybe scarred him a little bit as far as um, moving away from those type of uh, productions. But uh, you're right. Uh, the the there was a lot of environmental damage done by this movie to the point now where you actually can't even go to that beach. They've shut it down from tourists hmm. uh, to be able to go to it because it's been so damaged over the years first by the production and which then fox had to pay to like uh restore it after they destroyed it uh but then after that people just visiting it really sort of destroyed it but yeah exactly i mean look the world Well, i wanted to be those parasites lucy can we do a check-in how much does it cost for us to get to an island it doesn't have to be the exact island but but i want some reasonable facsimile i want jim jacklin and i to feel like we're on the actual oh, no. set of I'm getting you the there. beach. I'm getting you there. You are on Maya Beach, Maya Bay. I've got you there. Maya Bay. For, okay. Yeah. Ready? Okay. If you leave tomorrow and you stay for a month, but I actually only bought you guys one-way tickets, okay? American <laughs> Airlines me. to Cathay, Cathay Pacific? I don't know. Um, you're going to get to Bangkok. That will roughly cost about a thousand-ish a piece, okay? Um <laughs> Then I'm going to put you up in a hotel for two nights on the edge of the coast. It's called the Pullman Pattaya Hotel G. It is 46 US dollars per night. I'm going to have you guys stay there for two nights because you might need one night for prep. The second night will be for courage. You got to, gotta, you know, work yourself up, right? Because you're probably going to have to swim there. Just kidding. I got you a boat. The boat <laughs> is going to be a long tail boat, Okay. I'm going to get it for you guys for six hours. That will be roughly $64 a person. So all those numbers total out to be about $3,914.73 for a one-way ticket. You guys are not coming back. And technically, once you once the boat gets you to Maya Bay, you're going to have to get off, just like the characters in the movie, and then not come back. Because I did not get you a return ticket. <laughs> okay. No, that's the... 
That's the good travel agent you are. Um, the good news is that I anticipate the Wolf of Snow Hollow being hugely successful and, and that a lot of this is going to be on Jim's dime. And so I want to go ahead and thank Jim right now for not only the ticket for the, the boat, the hotel, but also the sunscreen. And now I'm going to be faced with every chubby kid conundrum. Do I take my shirt off once I get to the island or am I just going to be swimming in a T-shirt and claim that it's because I don't want to get sunburned? If you have Can seen you? Naked and Afraid, do not take your shirt off. You will burn and die. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. that. The ceiling of your Thailand adventure is still being the chubby kid wearing the t-shirt. Like it's not oh. it's not the beach, it's not I the mean, beautiful French girl. The first it is like you going to a water park in New Jersey or something. That's yeah, Jim the, Jim, the French girl is Mars to me. Okay. I'm just looking to get from point A to point B. I'm not I'm not in a rocket ship here. And literally, this is also fitting because the first thing I thought of is, I don't know if my hair is going to survive this trip. That's literally the first thing that I contemplated. And I know there's a brother on that, but he has dreads. He did not have to make oh, the yeah, kind of decisions right. that I did because I'm not waiting on Tilda Swinton to dry, to like go to the boat, to get to the mainland, to get me my cocoa butter and shea butter for my curls. And I will not deal with the reality of not having it. So I know I'm not probably making that full trip. I will go to South Asia and get drunk with y'all for the first two days i'll stick it around there with the lady boys y'all enjoy your time and glamp yeah yes, exactly okay, yeah cool. exactly i can glamp it up uh All right. well know. this has been uh th- th- not only has this been a great discussion about the beach but i think uh we also have a nice reality show that we're gonna <laughs> be plant. set to film here yeah <laughs> yeah bring zach efron that's basically what he's been doing for the oh, past yeah, six right. months we can bring that's zach right. efron <laughs> All right. I, I like where the, well, no, 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 no. I'm not bringing F front. I, I'm, I'm even out on bringing Jim just because Jim's <laughs> probably got much better abs than I do. Yeah. I, I don't. You know. Yeah. I can't. I'm not, I'm not the same class of human as a Jim Cummings. So <laughs> just the fact that I'm conceding first, first, first round pick the Jim, and then I'm just going to be the other guy. I just don't want to be piggy from Lord <laughs> of the Flies. That, that's really the goal here. <laughs> so if, if we look at the beach and, and we're talking about this in the context of, of Rotten Tomatoes being right or wrong, Jacqueline, it, it, it seems like you still are going to be on the side of Rotten. So I, I want to hear just your, your kind of closing salvo about why this is still maybe a movie that can be appreciated, but is still a Rotten film. Yeah, I mean, again, like I think both you and Jim were great about describing the real is it is a smart movie. It is a smart movie in a lot of ways, but it's also a smart, dumb movie because they were too stupid to care about story first. And that's really like it's Achilles heel. And if they were concerned with and when I say story, not the story they were telling, but how they were getting the audience to follow along, if they would have just spent a little more care with that, this movie, I think, could have been really incredible. And, you know, but I'm kind of glad that it ended up being the way that it is, because as I, we've established, it set up better situations for everyone involved. Except okay. for maybe you, a, you or McGregor. So, he kind of got the short end of the stick. But everybody else was good. I think Ewan is doing just fine. I cannot wait to check out that motorcycle ride show he's got on Apple yeah. TV. Yeah. Um, he's Obi-Wan so, Kenobi. He's doing fine. Yeah, he's, he, and, and he's not done being Obi-Wan. So we yeah. all have something to look forward to. Uh, Jim, Rotten Tomatoes is wrong in your estimation. Summarize. It's at a 20% right now, critically. Um, and I think that that is very off. I, I would be okay with somebody said that it was still rotten, but then it had higher numbers. Because when I watched that film, like there is expert filmmaking in that film. Darius Kanji shot it, same team behind Seven made it. Fucking Danny Boyle, who is an incredible filmmaker. He just took big chances. And I think like, 
I, I don't know. I It works for me so well. I understand that like so many people will watch movies and some people will hate them and some people will love them. But the craftsmanship and the way that they thread the needle, uh, the several needles in that film uh, really, really does work for me. And because of that, I, it's in my top 10. I think it, I think it's one of the best films made in the last several decades. Jim, okay, well, <laughs> let me just say I will agree with you on that one thing. I, because of the craftsmanship, although I don't think Rotten Tomatoes is wholly wrong, I do think that the score does belie its quality. But that's why it's a snapshot and not reality. I think if we polled the uh, the current critical community, it would definitely be higher. David Ehrlich yeah. would agree with this, so... Yeah. Yes, David would, yeah. would, would agree. We, with we, this. we got we got some some big players on 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 team Jim and Mark, and and I I think that Jacqueline probably is closer to the audience score than the than the tomato meter. But I'm going to go ahead and say I think Rotten Tomatoes is wrong too. I think this is a fresh movie, and I encourage everyone to check it out. Maybe not fall prey to what you think the movie is going to be about. Just put the movie on and try not to have any expectations, but go in and and w- with one mentality and don't be afraid of what that movie does to you emotionally because it can't hurt you it's just a little more than two hours and this is going to make uh leo and danny boyle feel like they won is because the beach actually did better when you combine the international and domestic numbers than jacqueline's movie with ewan mcgregor the island this movie actually did so the island was a much bigger financial disaster than the beach was so we have that. And to summarize, I will say I've never heard the term uh, Beethoven um, conducting a kazoo symphony before, but I am going to steal that in a lot of conversations heretofore. But I will replace Beethoven with the late, great, the king, Edward Van Halen playing yes. a kazoo. I really want to see what Eddie could have done with a kazoo. Um and before we, we can't let Jim get, get out of here before I, I have so many questions about your movie that's now available on VOD, The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Um, the biggest one is one. And I'm not sure if this is an annoying question to ask because it's called The Wolf of Snow Hollow and there's a lot of mystery involved with it. So I think it's good for this time of year. But I also think, Jim, this yeah. could be considered Christmas movie. It could be a Christmas movie, right? Oh, God, yeah. we're going to start this debate with another movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, it, in the screenplay, I'm supposed to be wearing a Christmas hat, like a Santa hat throughout the ending sequence, because I was like, this would be so ridiculous. And if my dad wears it in one scene, then like, I got it from the evidence bag. And then like, I'm wearing it throughout the movie as like an homage to him. Uh, so yeah, I mean, deep down, we knew from the very beginning that it was going to have old lanes on and it was going to be a, a New Year's Eve night thing with fireworks. Uh so, yeah, I mean, all of that was built into the DNA of the project, that it was going to be this kind of fun holiday movie, too. Yeah, you see, Jacqueline, it was a good question. No, I listen, I, I live for that one. I just don't want to start that debate because the diehard Christmas movie debate yeah. literally gives me PTSD at this point. Yeah. But um, it's it's an incredible movie, Jim. And uh, oh, Mark, thanks. I would, yeah, I would definitely tell you to check out his first film, uh, Thunder Road. Thunder Road, yeah. Yeah, because quite similarly... How do I put this and say this? You don't necessarily write yourself always the most likable characters, um, which I think is interesting because you choose to play them. But I do think what's really interesting with this guy is that in this movie, your character, I think he's essentially kind of being gaslit or maybe the gaslighter. So just talk about like having to play maybe the only person in the room who's not listening, but then also maybe the only person in the room who is. It's it's, it's quite a, a, a way that you place that character. 
Yeah, sure. So I think it's super important if you're going to be a writer, director, and actor to just humiliate yourself and not give you cool roles to play. I think that is just so important. And I, I hope people do that more often. Um, Jackie Chan does the same thing. He's not like a cool martial artist. He like is somebody who accidentally gets into a fight and then he's endearing because of that. I think it's super important to do that. Um, but yeah, no, my character is this guy named John Marshall and he thinks that there's no such thing as werewolves and he's kind of the heir apparent of this small town sheriff's department. My dad is the sheriff in the film played by Robert Forrester and uh, and so I'm kind of having to fight the battle and tell everybody around me that you know the obvious that werewolves are imaginary like the Easter Bunny and that it's actually a killer in town or an animal or something like that um, and and just from the size of the animal and the par- body parts that are taken from the scene I'm like this is probably uh, you know, a, a fetishistic necrophile, necrophile or like a, a serial killer or something like that. And everybody is like, nope, it's a wolf. Got to be a wolf. And so the film is actually just this, I guess, like description of what it's like to get the genie back in the bottle once the conspiracy theories start and how difficult it is to get anything done um, and to prove something is true in America. Um, and and yeah, so it's, it's basically just like venting a lot of what it's like to just d- deal with incompetent people. And I think everybody can relate to this guy every once in a while and willful and, and, willful people pick yes. their own facts they'll yep. just pick their own facts at this point and it very yep. brilliantly does that yeah depending on which news station you watch but i mean it, regardless of of which way you might slant and, and who you would have been when you watched the wolf of snow hollow it's such a treat to get to see robert forster on screen yeah again. yeah he was great he must have lent some sort of a uh a patriarchal presence during the filming of them. I mean, he was such a, oh, yeah. a seasoned veteran. And was he someone that you could lean on for, for advice and, and to talk, talk through things? Often. And, and with everybody, not just me. And like, I was the writer, director, and actor, but like all of the other cast and crew got to treat him like a grandfather or a father figure. And like, it was, there was an energy with him on set where everybody had to be at the top of their game. Like I, when he signed on to the project, I was like, oh shit, now I have to actually be good in this thing. I actually actually learn how to act because um, I'm going to be acting against Bob. And every moment that he was on set, he was just such a wonderfully kind, like, cowboy. And so, like, everybody was helping him to get between the shoots and, like, everybody wanted to hang out with him at lunch. And, I mean, he's fucking Robert Forrester. He's, you know, and Jackie Brown, he's like, the, he's an icon in genre film as well. Um, and just, like, a lovely, kind dude. And we we're shooting that scene where I'm kind of talking to him about retirement. It's like, um, you know, there's a full moon out and he's gathered everybody together and then we end up staying in the room together. It's a very sad scene. And we're like talking to each other and they're setting up the cameras and stuff and it's kind of quiet. And uh, and I told him how my dad is 83 and he, like can't retire, can't quit working. And, uh, and I told him, I was like, yeah, he was a lawyer for years and then ended up like starting a museum. And, you know, my family was just like, it's okay to take a day off. You don't have to work every day of your life. And uh, right before we started shooting, he, he was like, we're, t- you know, 10 inches away from each other getting lined up for the scene. And he goes, yeah, why quit? All right, let's do this thing. And then we like went on to shoot the rest of the scene. And I was, it was just so endearing of like him passing that on that like you you're an actor you don't stop being an actor just because you're older that is part of your identity like you can't get rid of it just by you know not going to work one day you're still that person and yeah he 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 passed on so much to all of us he was just like a really awesome gentleman and knew my lines better than I did he but he loved us he he, lo- he he loved our previous movies and it was like an honor that he was like yeah we're going to do the movie let's uh, let's make a werewolf picture it was fun 
he uh, he he's he's such a joy to watch in this, and and you're great in the film as well, Jim. And 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 to direct it, and and to have this thing be the success that it is, I'm I'm really I'm genuinely happy for you. It's been great talking with you about the beach and the Wolf of Snow Hollow. The Wolf of Snow Hollow you can get anywhere in the world now. It's on VOD. You could probably even get it on the actual beach where Leo was, where <laughs> we're not allowed to go for environmental reasons. But you can you can pick it up on VOD and check it out. You can also get the beach if you want to. Get get invested in this conversation. It's currently available on Fandango Now and Voodoo. And Jim, as we we say goodnight here, where can everybody out there in the world follow you? Do you do any of the social media or where's the best way to stay up to date on what's going on with you and your career? Uh, Twitter is probably the best place, Twitter or Instagram. And I'm Jimmy C. That's me on there. Very Jimmy stupid, C. That's me. Yeah. Very stupid <laughs> seventh grade email that uh, I haven't gotten rid of yet. <laughs> Well, look, I my my original Twitter handle was at 5150 Ellis because I'm that big of a Van Halen fan. And then I was like, well, I should probably change it because if I ever get to hang out with the Van Halen guys, I don't want to seem like a fanboy. So then I changed it by that time. Somebody else had taken Mark Ellis and some guy who never uses Twitter. And so I can't get that. And so now I'm Mark Ellis live. And so that is at least like, hey, you can get tickets to see me, you know, when I'm allowed to perform stand up cool. again. So. So yeah, cool. we, 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 we got Jimmy C, we got uh, Mark Ellis live, and then we have that Jacqueline. Yes, that's me. Uh, yeah, so I am that Jacqueline um, on every form of social media because I'm that girl that talks about movies. And more importantly, um, we also want to hear from you guys because, yes, I write on RottenTomatoes.com, so you can always head over there to see what I'm talking about on the season. But also you can follow us on our handles at Rotten Tomatoes, Twitter, Instagram, you know, maybe TikTok. We'll see what happens. Um, but we are listening. So we want to know from you either on the social media handles or you can email us directly at rtiswrong at rottentomatoes.com. And we have already had some really great responses about folks pitching movies saying, please cover this next. Please, please, please keep those recommendations coming. But we also want to ask you if you're listening to this on a podcast platform and you like us, rate and subscribe. And if you don't like us, go to a different podcast and tell them that. Um, but we definitely <laughs> want to hear from you what you're thinking about the show. And if you do end up watching The Beach, if you haven't seen it before, I'm not trying to advocate for drug use, but I would say if you live in a state like California where uh, cannabis is legal, I do think that the film would be more enjoyable if you watched it there. That's just my personal <laughs> advice. Watched it in that in that setting, like watching it in a in a state where you can legally have recreational You're marijuana. Not encouraging drug use. It's just those states that where they have legal. Just a, any anybody in that area probably would enjoy it. Exactly. Um, if you have it available, do it. I stay agree. legal. Stay legal. Stay safe. Stay at home. All of these things help. <laughs> All right. Well, if you are allowed to do that, then I'm going to say I'm going to drink a whole six pack watching next week's subject. And that is Hocus Pocus. We're going back oh, to man. the all time Halloween nostalgia movie for an entire generation of which I think I just missed. And we'll talk about <laughs> why Hocus Pocus is a Halloween classic, if it is even a Halloween classic. We'll get into all of that next week. I want to thank Jim Cummings, writer, director, actor. Once again, check out his new movie, The Wolf of Snow Hollow. And be like me and check out his old movie, Thunder Road, and Jacqueline Coley as well. I am merely Mark Ellis. Oh, and our travel agent, producer Lucy. Thank you so much, Lucy, for our <laughs> up-to-date facts on how to go on vacation. And we will be talking to you all next time. Next time.